I've noticed that in these kinds of presentations, people have questions, and, and sometimes just talking about uh, the language used to speak about uh, gender, transgender issues, facilitates some really interesting conversation. So I think that's what we were hoping to do today, is answer your questions, address concerns, um, and, and share information. I think that what we wanted to do first was to talk about terminology. Some of you have this. Uh, we, I, first, I'm blown away by how many people are here. You know, we were kind of thinking 50 people. That would be a lot. And we had 50 handouts, um, and they're all gone. So some of you do not have those handouts. So if you don't have those handouts, uh, I think that there are some cards um, Sandy can send you the handout, and it has lots of really interesting information, some terminology, best practices, those kinds of things. And most importantly, probably, um, is some information about what the trans population, specific, well, the trans population in general faces, uh, some of the issues, the, the folks that you might encounter are dealing with. Um, so it's important information, um, and it's worth reading. So I guess what we could do is, is go over terminology and talk about that for a little bit, uh, move into what trans folk might be dealing with. Uh, I've worked with Sandy before, uh, though I think this is the first time we've presented together. Yes. Yeah. So we can talk about some of those issues, what, what I've seen, what she's seen, clinical issues, um, those kinds of things. And then we can move into kind of talking about what's going on, what you've seen, your questions and concerns. On the very first page, it talks about just some fears. So just an acknowledgement, not a judgment, you know, about what um, generally what people kind of some of the concerns that people have when, when we begin to work with the trans population. What does that look like? What are some of the practical issues, restrooms, you know, those kinds of things. And then uh, opening up to the next page is terminology. And the first thing there is gender. And a lot of times whenever I do presentations and we don't have handouts, I will just kind of ask uh, those present what their feelings are about these terms. It's interesting, no one has the same definition for gender. So gender is a generic term that's used to refer to any and all aspects of gender orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. Gender orientation refers to one's subjective experience of one's physical sex. That is, your own private experience of your body, your sexed body. Gender identity refers to one's subjective experience of a cultural sex. So, I identify as a man, I identify as a woman, neither or both. So, gender expression refers to one's subjective experience of communicating gender orientation and gender identity. So, how we do that, how we dress, how we talk, how we walk, all the kind of social cues. So that's my expression of gender. Taken together, these three dimensions of gender 
are the subjective results of the brain's neurology within the context of our society's culture. Any questions about gender? Yep, okay. So transgender, also known as trans or trans with an asterisk, you might see, TG. It's an umbrella term that encompasses a variety of people, including transsexuals, cross-dressers, drag kings and queens, as well as bi-gender androgynous individuals. Transgender came into common usage during the 1970s, but was first used in 1965 to refer to transsexuals who wanted genital reconstructive surgery. Today, the term transgender is used to refer to individuals who are not cisgender. And cisgender a.k.a. cis or cissexual, is an umbrella term that encompasses a variety of people who are not transgender. For example, this term is used to refer to someone who was sex male at birth, uh, subjectively experiences their sex to be male, identifies as male, and experiences his identity in a manner consistent with cultural male gender stereotypes. Any questions? Yeah? Okay. So, now that we have talked about some terms, the next section is about connecting the dots, and, and, and that gets into talking about what your, your trans clients might be dealing with. Um, and it talks about cis privilege. That is, a, I'll just define that. It refers to a set of unearned advantages that individuals who identify as their gender, as the gender they were assigned at birth, accrue solely due to having a cisgender identity. This section has a list of various um, examples of cis privilege that transgender people have asserted. So, like, number one, you can use the public restroom without fear of verbal abuse, physical intimidation, or assault. The court yes. The moment, the one uh, says, who was sex male at birth? Yes. Born male? Meaning that regardless if you are, so in Texas, if you are born intersex, right? That means that, uh, so one out of every 500 live births in America is born intersex. That means that their body, their chromosomes, somehow are representative of both male and female. They are assigned a gender, okay? A doctor will make the call, okay, you're going to be male, you're going to be female. You are assigned a sex, regardless of what your gender orientation is. So we are all assigned a sex. And generally that happens without genetic testing. So they look and say, the doctor thinks that your external genitalia, genitalia looks female, so you're assigned mm-hmm. the sex of female without any kind of genetic testing. Right, exactly. So, uh, and, and whenever we say assign male, so we assign a child a, a set of stereotypes that we, you know, we, and I say we as in culture, our culture hopes that and expects that they should adhere to. You know, we're going to give a little boy little, you know, boy toys. We're going to give them blue clothing and those kinds of things because that somehow connotes male. We're going to assign that to them. We're going to culturate them in, 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 in those expectations. 
So when we talk about assigning male and assigning female at birth, that's what we're talking about. And that's a very good question. So, so my next question would be, if they're an adult and mm-hmm. have both, they're called what? So, so hermaphrodite is an older term that's fallen out of use. Back in around 1940, the term that was um, here in America, at least, that came into common usage within the medical community was intersex. And within the community of intersex individuals, uh, intersex is the term, is the preferred term. Yes. So on cis privilege, you're talking about those privileges that are inherent, meaning cis, cis privileges of being a female, cis privilege of being a male. And then what happens is the cisgenderism happens because it's going against that privilege of being male or being considered female, and then there comes that dichotomy of this crazy. Exactly. And, and let me give you some real-world examples that uh, I, I've personally seen, and this is kind of historically. So if you are a trans person and you're working at a job, it has been historically perfectly legal for your employer to come up to you and say, look, I just found out you're one of those freaks. We don't like your kind here. You're fired. Perfectly fine, perfectly legal. Let's say that that, uh, that, that employer was a real ass and decided to call your landlord and let them know that they have someone like that living there. It would be perfectly fine, perfectly legal for that landlord to go knock on your door and say, look, we didn't know you were one of those kind of people. We don't like that here in this kind of neighborhood. Get out. Now that you're homeless, you know, it's been perfectly legal, perfectly fine for lots, in fact all, historically, um, homeless shelters, to go, we don't like your kind here either. Yeah, we might have some extra beds, but you can't sleep here. And so what does that lead to? And so in in the very back, uh, it talks about the results of that, the stats. 46% are unemployed. 28% attempt suicide. 30% 30% are homeless, uh, 21% HIV positive. Now, I want to just pause on that. 21% HIV positive. Can anyone give me the rate of HIV infection within sub-Saharan Africa? 80%? Yep. 5%. And that's, that's, that's significant. That really is very significant. So I just want to juxtapose that, that rate. It's the highest HIV infection rate, period. Um, victim of rape, 42%. 42% of the population, victim of rape. 48%, victim of assault. And, of course, 56% no health insurance. So, so that's kind of the real-world effect of cis privilege, of, of these kinds of institutionalized barriers that push a community kind of to the, to the edge of our society in, in real world terms. You can't get a job or uh, you are thrown out of your house because maybe your parents don't particularly like people like you. And maybe the child shelter 
the youth shelter in your town decides that they don't like trans people either. And let's say that maybe uh, you go looking for social services and, you know, you walk in and the receptionist laughs at you. Give you a for instance, I, I have a friend who uh, was HIV positive, well, still is HIV positive, and uh, she started her transition, went to a very well-known provider, walked in the door, the receptionist laughed at her, and so she turned around and walked away and fell out of care for that reason. I think the stats are um, quite interesting because... Uh, I'm a social worker by trade, and we talk about at-risk communities. And the trans community is at risk more than any other communities that I've worked with. And we have heard in the vernacular about white privilege, right? Everyone has heard about white privilege and how it impacts persons of color um, in our American society, right? Before today, how many of you had heard of cis privilege? Nobody. How many in here had thought about how your gender expression might make you a minority in society as a large? Yeah, you had? Okay. What about in our court settings? How does gender expression play out? It doesn't accommodate. Okay. I'm sorry? To my knowledge, it doesn't accommodate. Okay. The court setting doesn't accommodate gender expression that's different than societal norms. Correct. Okay. So how do you handle it now when you have a client who comes in and their legal sex on their ID it is, for example, male, and they come into your court with a feminine gender expression? Well, in Harris County Star Court, we do have transgender clients. Mm-hmm. We have a, a large amount, but we do have transgender clients. The problem that is arising probably not the Star Court, but regions that do have transgender transgender clients uh, is that some probation officers feel that why should I be forced to take a urine analysis of somebody that I'm not comfortable taking urine analysis on? Hmm. Uh, there, there's a problem right there. Okay. And I was going to ask you that question. If y'all conduct UAs, how do you all handle that? Well, in our setting, um, we're a treatment provider, but the only drug testing we do is cheek swaps. So I would never be supervising anybody in the restroom setting. So I can't personally speak to that. Yes, sir? Yeah, I mean, it's even more simple than that. In that, you know, in these problem-solving courts, it's supposed to be a team approach. And when we're talking about in a team setting, and you can't even agree whether you're going to call them by their female name or their male name, there's... That creates a lot of confusion right there. Mm-hmm. So how do you address that? Absolutely. And there was um, one of the clients in my program now is a trans client, and she is on a docket in Star Court. And um, the court was really good about referring to her by her preferred name, not her legal name on her ID. But one day there was a visiting judge who uh, addressed her by her legal name, at which point client, I mean, you assume that everybody knows, right? You assume everybody knows that you're trans, but that's not necessarily true. And, and in this particular instance, several of these ladies that she had been going through court with for 10 months and had been in a treatment setting with had no idea about her trans status until it was revealed in the court setting. 
Yes, sir. Right. My comment uh, from Dallas County experience after interviewing the person and if this person identifies this information, then we can go forward and communicate that. But then, you know, you have so many spectrums of a person being themselves okay with it and not, because even with your statistics, there's X amount who probably aren't being, you know, expressing themselves. Mm -hmm. So therefore, when I said it doesn't accommodate, I guess I was thinking <coughs> perhaps the lockup stage, but in a problem-solving course, after interviewing the person, then we can take it to the next level and staff it as a team and come up with a decision. Mm -hmm. So um, I was kind of looking for answers from you guys from a panel situation in terms of where it's going, where is it heading in terms of what you guys, excuse me, or individuals mm -hmm. would like to have provided from us as professionals. Okay. So uh, in, in this packet, there are, there's a statement from the American Psychiatric Association, which also references the American Medical Association, some do's and don'ts from the U.S. Department of Health uh, and Human Services, some best practices, uh, and also helpful. Uh, there's a section that says transsensitivity model. You can kind of look at this and get a sense of where you are on that spectrum of being anti-trans to trans-affirming and kind of see what specific steps you might be able to take towards that. Does that answer your question at all? Uh, somewhat. I was, you know, like just, like you said, the terminology, mm -hmm. that was new for me. And, you know, what, what in our system, being that it's the correctional system, mm -hmm. it's probably the hardest yes. age-wise in terms of dealing with that. And so, you know, the population that you deal with ongoing, what do you see that might be needed that could educate us in working with them? I, I think the uh, criminal justice system is a challenging setting for working with trans clients, but I... It is by no means the only setting in which trans clients face barriers that other clients don't face. Um, substance abuse treatment, when you're looking for inpatient beds, how many of you have, have tried to find an inpatient bed for a transgender client? Okay, well, no, because we would assign them that we would utilize the gender in which they were assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so seeking a, you're a seeking a male bed for someone who, male. who, well, on their on their state ID, they're male, right. but their gender identity and their gender expression is not male. Absolutely. So, can you imagine how we're we're putting clients into a clinical setting where we're asking them to be completely honest about everything that's ever happened to them, about everything they've ever done, so that they can move past the trauma that they've experienced and start healing and start recovering, right? But if I am, if I was assigned a male sex at birth and I am still biologically male, even though I'm taking my hormones and I've transitioned, and you take me, Sandy, and you put me in a male treatment facility, how do you think that's going to work for me? Right? It's not. I mean, if my legal name is Steve, they're going to expect me to dress like Steve and talk like Steve and, and share from Steve's history, right? And that's not beneficial for me. 
It's really not. Yes, ma'am. So just using that and based on this, you know, this box that we, this cookie cutter kind of thing that we have to work out of, if, are there services available that we're not aware of that would pay, that would be there specifically for that, for juveniles specifically right. is what I'm searching for? Well, there, there are outpatient treatment centers mm -hmm. that are better than others. As far as inpatient treatment in the state of Texas, there's really not any inpatient treatment facility that I'm aware of that specializes in treating trans clients. And you can tell no. your story. <laughs> in, in fact, uh, I think it was a few years ago we did this uh, survey of inpatient drug treatment. In fact, uh, Fred helped us with this. We had a group of people. Uh, this was kind of a secret shopper kind of thing. We, we had two groups of people. One had a, a like a... Uh, a role as a client who is ready to get into service and every other barrier, insurance, everything, you know, that was all part of their personal history. They could pay for it, they had the time off work, everything was great, but they were trans. To see if they could find any place that would take them. And then we had a group of people who were case managers who were calling about a trans client. And Neither group could find any place that would take a trans client. And the deal is, uh, and, and I think that this is a function of cis privilege, but there's this model that, you know, look, all our clients, they're going to have issues with it. And, and we don't want to cause trauma for people, other people. We don't want to cause disruption you know, so we're going to ask this person to be considerate of everyone's needs and, and, and just deal the best they can. We're going to support them in that. Now, in what other context would that be okay? Would that be okay if there was a, a, a group full of white people and a black person came in? These white people, well, they had a problem with this person. You know, they just felt really uncomfortable. Would that be okay? No. No, it's not. So, um, and, and again, kind of going back to the health and human services do's and don'ts, um, again, I really encourage you, if you don't have this, you know, please write Sandy and get it. It's helpful. Um, and there's nothing, each agency is unique, and each one of your situations, I would dare say, is going to be a bit unique. There's no one-size-fits-all and there's nothing that I can tell you, give you specifically, like, um, well, this is the one thing you should always do for everyone, period. It's not going to always be like that. Yes? What about a website or something that we could go to that would have maybe community-based, um, I guess, region-oriented or something like that, but community-based um, resources that are available to people who are identified or who identify in that way? That would be us. So uh, if, if your agency or you have an issue with a client or, you know, you need help in some way, you can always reach out to the Transgender Center. Uh, the, the website uh, is tgctr.org. I don't know if I put I don't think contact information. In the Houston area, the Ryan White... Planning Council puts out the Blue Book, which is a HIV AIDS resource guide, but not all of the resources in the book are exclusively for HIV um, 
person, HIV positive persons. So it's a good place to start because a lot of the agencies in that guide are more familiar with working with the GLBT community um, and plug Houston Area Community Services is in that guide. And um, we have quite a bit of experience working with the trans community and with um, other minority populations. And we've been involved with the STAR Court program for the last three years doing a SAMHSA-funded project, which you can learn more about on Friday, another plug. Um, so it's a good place to start. And the Montrose Center is a counseling center that does mental health and substance abuse treatment specifically with the GLBT community. They also have a domestic violence program for persons in the GLBT community. So a lot, I mean, you look at the statistics on the back and you see at, at what risk the TG community is at. And so it makes sense that they're gonna have intimate partner violence at a higher rate than the heterosexual community. And so that's a really good resource to have. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. I just had a comment. I used to work at a residential treatment facility. And whenever we received um, transgender clients, we had to treat them according to their sexual orientation, what they considered themselves as. Okay. And when I was sitting here listening to some of the feedback, a specific person popped in my mind, and I remember he could dress like a woman, put his makeup on, but he had to attend the men group. Okay. And then that was a problem in itself for other men. Mm -hmm. Well, and for for her as well. Because, yeah, because he would present okay, as long as nobody bothered him or didn't mistreat him or say things to offend him, he was okay there. But when somebody would make an inappropriate comment, it always caused problems, you know, to the point where a couple of times he wanted to just leave, and I was talking to him to stand. But yeah, it is going to always be a problem when you try to, you know, it, the agency itself wants to accept him the way he is. So if he's female, that's okay. But then you stick him into an all-male group, and then that's not okay. No, it's really not. It would be like taking um, one of your female, your female clients and putting her in the male residential treatment facility. Not only is it not going to be beneficial to her recovery, it could be dangerous to her, to her physical well-being. And, and to just kind of also piggyback on that, there's this graph here uh, comparing uh, rates of PTSD, social anxiety, among the trans population. And this really shouldn't be news. I mean, you've got a population that has uh, high rates of assault and rape and discrimination. So it compares uh, rates of PTSD in, uh, between the transgender population, the cisgender population, and military personnel. And uh, as you can see, the trans population's rate of PTSD is off the charts. Um, and, and to give you a sense of that, I've had clients show up numerous times to their appointments, black and blue, because they dared get on the bus. I've known numerous 
trans people who were murdered. And I've known numerous individuals who wound up taking their own life. The, the reality for trans people is that it's likely that they've known someone who, if they've not been murdered, they've uh, had an attempt made on their life, they're going to know people who killed themselves. They're going to, if they haven't been raped, they know someone who's raped, been raped. If, if they've not been beaten, they certainly know people who, are been, who have been beaten. And so if they're fortunate enough to have their own place to live, you know, generally, whenever, before they get ready to go outside, they're going to spend about two hours getting ready. And not because they think they're RuPaul and a diva. It's because they want to ensure that when they walk out that door, they're not going to get beaten or killed. And you live with that day after day after day after day, 24-7, year in, year out. The, the, the fact that there's a high rate of substance use within the trans population is, yeah, it's, it's, yes. Earlier you mentioned that it's fine and it's uh, legally right, you know, for people to get taken out of a position, mm -hmm. to be taken out of, you know, sure. home. Is there anything that's being done legally? So, uh, so since the 90s, there were, there's been a law called the Employment Non-Discrimination uh, act that's been uh, they've tried to get it passed through Congress since the 90s and it never passes. Right now uh, there's some pressure upon Obama to pass a executive order INDA that would affect U uh, contractors, U.S. contractors and uh, federal employees that would ban discrimination based on sexual orientation uh, gender identity and expression which would ban uh, those, those kinds of things. HUD uh, recently, within this last year, um, changed their non-discrimination policy to uh, explicitly state that you can't, if you're HUD funded, that you can't discriminate against trans people. And that's very, very new. A lot of the folks who provide homeless services are not HUD funded. They're faith-based organizations. Oh, yes, some questions. Yes. To kind of piggyback off that question, Alan, since there is a SAMHSA and dishes and mm -hmm. research and all that, how come that hasn't transferred over to, uh, I mean, like HUD, they said it's a limited mm -hmm. funding for a lot of uh, things, but um, it seems to be like a really big problem for uh, this population. And yes. Nothing's really going on to rectify And it's also a political hot potato. It, so, yeah. How has the psychiatric community um, changed in their attitude towards um, tra the trans population? At one time, the DSM-4 mm -hmm. classified it as a mental illness, and I know that there are some changes that are occurring. Could you respond on that? And what Beautiful question. Beautiful question. So it used to be the DSM said that homosexuality was a mental disorder. When that was taken in, it was... Re kind of replaced by a gender identity disorder. So if you behaved in a way that wasn't in line with your sex assigned at birth, you were disordered. Okay, so you could sleep with someone, but if you were an effeminate man or a masculine woman or in any other way transgender, you're still disordered. There's a great book called The Last Time I Wore a Dress. 
And it's about this. It's, a, it's about a, a young lady who was kind of butch and was institutionalized almost all of her adolescence because she didn't act like a girl under gender identity disorder. So the trans community has advocated very, very robustly uh, over the last several decades to get that changed. Now, um, the, the new DSM, when that comes out, gender identity disorder is going away. So everyone will be cured of that. And it's going to be replaced by something called gender dysphoria, which is in some ways much better. In some ways, it still stigmatizes a community. In some ways, uh, it, at least this has an exit point. So gender identity disorder, if you're ever diagnosed with that, it doesn't matter what you do, you always have that disorder till the day you die. There's no exit from that. This it has an exit, and it's associated with uh, the sense of anxiety, the fear, and all of that kind of stuff, the depression, that, that goes along with not transitioning or transitioning and all of the difficulty associated with that. Once you get past that, you address um, the gender issues, whether that's through therapy or therapy and hormones or therapy and hormones and surgery, you no longer have gender dysphoria, which is much better. Um, I have a question. So if someone comes in my office, uh, mm -hmm. a male comes in my office who identifies, I'm sorry, a male assigned who identifies as a female, mm -hmm. is it beneficial for me to bring up that conversation um, just so that I'm able to, we can, I guess, kind of get it out of the open at the beginning, you know, and, and speak on it and be comfortable about it? Or? There's some great ways to bring that up, and then there's some terrible ways. You know, so if a client comes in your office, you don't want to say, are you a man? You know, you, know, you don't. But, you know, there, there are some, um, some subtle ways to start bringing those things up. You can change your forms, even to ask questions, what sex were you assigned at birth? What is your gender now? Are you male to female transgender, female to male transgender, male or female, intersex, those kinds of things. And if you have a client filling out that form and they see that, that's a pretty loud statement that this is a safe place. I, I can talk about what's going on and it's not going to be judgmental. You know, things that small can be helpful. Uh, also in this, it talks about talking with your clients about legal issues. Um, are, do you have other legal issues? I noticed your name is this, it's that. Do you know that there's this free legal packet to get your name changed? Would you like it? You know, um, they have those, it's just fill in the blank name change forms online. You know, you can, there are a variety of ways to kind of approach that. Let's say I do, so, you know, bring it up very so mm -hmm. is, is that, I guess, is it bad or do I want them to come out first with a conversation and, and kind of... So, talking about, is it, do I want to go out with the conversation first just to kind of get it out of the way, or do I need to wait and not bring it up, that type of thing? I can really appreciate that. Uh, and because sometimes uh, folks will deal with this sense of fear, shame, and guilt, and expectation of uh, 
people being rude, and you know, sometimes people will come in with a huge chip on their shoulder, and they're going to be angry and surly and assertive and things, and that's how they're going to deal with this because it's that's how they deal with this stuff. Uh, if that happens, know that that's about a coping mechanism, you know, in some regards. If you broach it and and ask them, how can I help you? You know, are you having any issues? Um, if if it's raised in that context, I, it's been my experience that people feel a lot safer talking about it and being open about it rather than let's spend the entire time picking apart your history. Tell me everything. What is your gender and what does your genitalia look like? And let me write all that down, you know. I, in my experience, if you ask for what is your preferred name, and we ask that of every client. We don't just assume my legal name is Sandy. If I come see Kristen, she's not going to assume that I want to go by Sandy. She's going to ask me what I prefer. And I do the same thing for pronouns, like would you prefer for me to refer to you as he or she? And then I do the best in my ability to make sure that I always refer to them with the correct pronoun. And if pronouns become an issue, like if you just can't wrap your head around it and you just can't get it right, then just call them by their name, their preferred name. And it sounds silly to say Sandy and then five seconds later say Sandy, but it's so much better than using the wrong pronoun and upsetting that person and making them feel like you don't value who they are. Is there an assessment tool that you... Um that we can utilize the training providers for the trans, sexual transgender community? Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, Eli Coleman, Dr. Eli Coleman, had uh, come up with a survey tool and is, is located in a, a SAMHSA guide that they came up with like a decade ago for working with the GLBT community. Uh, and you can download... I think that... The CDC's website has that guide from SAMHSA on their website. Uh, and, and that tool, it's a form, uh, is, is in that guide. Other questions? I actually have one. When y'all talk about the name change and go like online, there's a form that you can print out. I mean, because we're dealing with a juvenile situation here. They have to have parents. Sure, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's very difficult. Uh, there's, a, there's a group here in Houston called Hatch. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that's sometimes a good way to, for young people to meet other young people. Are they online, I'm assuming? Uh, yes, yes, they're online. And... We, we also, at, at the Trans Center, we have a group for parents of trans kids. So, uh, so if, if a parent is maybe struggling and maybe wants to talk to another parent. Just thinking about that, too. If we, and not encourage that, but if we, you know, connected connect mm-hmm. that as a juvenile, wouldn't that further complicate things like at school? If we allowed a child to go from, uh, or whatever, provided them with the tools to change their name, mm-hmm. uh, maybe that hadn't been yet an idea that they had uh, incurred, but they they go through that, and then I think about, like, PE, gym class, mm-hmm. and stuff like that, so if they had a female name, and then now they have a male name, then they're placed in a male PE class, 
Well, fortunately, um, HISD ha- ha- has a brand new non-discrimination policy that covers trans kids, uh, which is, is great. And so what that does is put in place a, a, a mechanism for parents and teachers and administrators to actually deal with these nuanced issues in an adult way rather than saying, no, you know, you know we're, we're going to force you to act in a way that we think you should act regardless of your gender orientation, regardless of what your doctor says, regardless of what your mother says, regardless of what your psychologist says. You know, these are our standards and you will adhere to them or else. Did you get Conroe ISD to do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, H- HISD took many years. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where we're at on time. Wow. Okay. Yes. What type of services do you um, what the Trans Houston offer? So uh, the Transgender Center has support, a variety of support groups, um, and then case management and HIV services. Um, and workshops um, and it's kind of uh, almost a (laughs) catch-all because this issue has so many again nuanced kind of branches Uh, a person when someone comes in they're needing legal help, they're needing medical help, they're needing therapeutic help and help with a job, and if they're homeless, that complicates things, and on and on and on and on. So, uh, in, in essence, if you were to boil it all down, it's a lot of case management. Okay. That's a great place to make a referral. And Houston Area Community Services offers medical care uh, for the trans community. Dr. Hunter Hamill and Dr. Juan Garza, they both provide uh, TG clinics. And um, as a federally qualified health center, all clients who are low income are eligible for sliding fee discounts. And we also have behavioral health services, mental health therapy, um, substance abuse treatment, and psychiatry. And the providers are all familiar with working with the trans community. Houston Area Community Services. And I have business cards somewhere if you want uh, to pick you, one up. You ran out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's great. I mean, I it's horrible, left, but. That's yeah. <laughs> okay. I think they were, uh, she only has two cards, so I think they want you to give out your email address. Okay. Um, my email address is sjones at h-a-c-s, like hacks, t-x-s, dot org. And one more time. S. Jones at H A C S T X S dot org. And, and mine is Kristen C R I S T A N at T G C T R dot O R G. Again, that's C R I S T A N at T G C T R dot O R G. I have one more question. How are y'all funded? Like, if they want to do outpatient treatment for substance abuse? We, right, right now, um, 
We have funding through HUD and HOPWA, which is Housing Opportunities for People with AIDS, for our substance abuse treatment program. <coughs> so in order to qualify for the HUD funding, they have to be a client of our housing program, okay? Um, but the HOPWA clients, if they're HIV positive and low income, they would qualify under HOPWA for uh, abuse treatment. Otherwise, they would be expected to pay according to the sliding fee scale, but um, payment plans are available and all they have to do is make a nominal payment like a dollar a month and then they're, and we never turn over our debt to collections. So at the end of the year, whatever is not paid gets written off and that's how it works. Okay, but Montrose Center also offers behavioral health services for the TG community, and they I also Montrose, they take they, we take Medicaid, we take Medicare, we are also credentialed on some private health insurances, <coughs> not very many, like I think we're on, well the behavioral health is not very many, the medical care, they take a whole lot, um, but I think we're credentialed on United Health and a couple of others for behavioral health services. You had one person in the back, a lady wanted to know where's your email address on your handouts. It's not. It's not. Sorry. I think, unless you guys have some more questions, I think we're done. Can, can you offer up a gift? We want to offer our presenters a certificate of appreciation.